Today on IFS Talks, we are so happy to be welcoming back Mike Elkin. Mike Elkin is an IFS senior lead trainer who's been involved with the model since 1995. He's been a popular presenter, conducting scores of trainings and workshops throughout the U.S. and Europe, and he's taught level one trainings in Boston since 2003. Mike was a pioneer in applying hypnotic and strategic approaches to addiction treatment, and he's integrated those tools into IFS treatment. Recently, he's been co-leading an IFS level two on depression, anxiety, and shame with Ann Cinco. Mike also has a private practice in marriage, family, individual psychotherapy, and he's focused on training therapists in the internal family systems model. He also specializes in high-conflict couples, phobias, somatic issues, aftermath of trauma, addiction, eating disorders, and cynicism, and probably so much more, knowing Mike. Welcome back to IFS Talks. We're so happy to have you here today, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. I do want to make one correction, which is I no longer accept therapy clients, and I've focused my practice on consultation and supervision and teaching. So welcome back, Mike. It's now 16 months since we sat together for a talk. In that first wonderful talk, you could introduce yourself and share many amazing stories on your personal and professional journey. It was such a great talk. And you also could present some of your ideas on how IFS sees anxiety, depression, and shame. It was a great episode with so much to learn from you and your huge experience and wisdom. How have you been those days? How active have you been? Well, yeah, I've been busier than I've been in 30 years. Uh, wow. Because, I, you know, I was sort of drifting into uh, a pattern where I was spending a lot of time in a pool room playing three cushion billiards. And when COVID showed up and I discovered I was not addicted to three cushion billiards because if I were, I would have kept going to the pool room with all these <laughs> anti-vaxxers and Trumpsters uh, and I would have gotten sick and died. And instead I uh, was home and I had a lot of time on my hands. So I started taking more clients and started also getting very interested again in IFS, and that was facilitated by the fact that my youngest son uh, took the training. I, I did a training in Austin. Yeah. And mm -hmm. my youngest son, who's a musician, and found that he can't make a living making records anymore because uh, mm -hmm. he had two hit records, but didn't make any money from them because they were all free. You can get them, you know. Yeah. Uh, decided to get, he asked to get trained, and I trained him, and he's become incredibly involved in IFS and he's very talented. And so mentoring him really got me going again. Wow. And uh, lucky you. I'm way into teaching IFS and thinking about it. Is he using the model as a therapist now? He is. He's not a therapist because he has a high school equivalency and two years of Berkeley College of Music. Yeah. So he calls himself a spiritual advisor. Oh, great. And he's got a full practice, and I can't get him to take anybody anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was using him as a sort of, but he's full up, so. Yeah, beautiful. Lucky you.
Mike, you have suggested five topics for our talk today. Mm -hmm. Sounds like today we will have a full plate of interesting and relevant topics, I would say. Mostly advanced ones, advanced stuff. You have suggested to talk about befriending suspicious and stubborn parts, contracting parts that interfere with relationship, disarming dangerous parts, and boundaries and self-defense. So, looks as we will have a full plate of various relevant topics for our community of IFS practitioners. So, let's start off with the first ones, the suspicious and stubborn parts. What are suspicious parts and how do they present? Well, they, you know, generally, you know, you run into it most dramatically with people who've experienced uh, complex trauma, which means their experience was they grew up uh, without a safe adult in their life. And therefore, their protective parts uh, develop very precociously because usually, uh, you know, you can expect parents to set reasonable boundaries around you and communicate reasonable expectations. And if you don't have adults to do that, very young parts need to do that. And they need mm -hmm. to do that much younger than uh, they can be expected to be competent at it. So uh, they're constantly feeling ineffective because they are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And they're constantly exposed to shame, which makes them more uh, active. And uh, so they are going to very much distort uh, the perceptions of, of these people. And then when they come to you, uh, they're going to see you as a threat. Mm -hmm. And they have no confidence that you're going to be acting in their best interest because that isn't their experience of authority figures. Their experience of authority figures and grown-ups is that uh, they basically have no interest in your needs or feelings. Oh. What's an example of a common stubborn part um, that someone with complex trauma shows up with? Well, like like you say, you know, is that part willing to have a conversation with you? And uh, the per the person will say, uh, you know, that's crazy. You know, what do you mean a part? What do you? Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I don't. You know, I don't like to think about parts. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a person. You know, anything like that. I mean, it's very. You know, I mean, we all get that a little of that with people who have less extreme backgrounds. But the more extreme the background is, uh, the more energized those parts are going to be and the less able they're going to be to listen. So one of the, the strategies I've used, because I have a background in hypnosis, is to try to confuse them a little bit and not, not give them the answer they're expecting So, because if they're a little confused, that means they get a little curious. And curiosity is the most accessible of self qualities. Mm. So, uh, because, you know, if you learn hypnosis, or at least learn hypnosis from an Ericksonian sort of tradition, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I did, uh, you're, you're actively taught techniques for confusing people. <laughs> And, uh, 
you know, I've sort of let go of my tricky parts, but I, you know, the technology is still there. And so uh, what I, what I try to do is not react basically from parts, not react defensively, but react with curiosity. And the more I do that, the more likely it is that I'll be able to get into uh, a, a useful conversation with some of these parts and try to help under, them understand what I'm up to. Because what I'm trying to do is get them to hire me as their therapist. Just like, you know, if you're working with somebody who has what, you know, is called out in the world DID, which is they have parts that don't subscribe to a general identity. When they show up, you try to get them to hire you as a therapist. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I what I do is I understand that the way these parts are reacting to me doesn't have much to do with me. And so if I can keep the parts of me that take anything personally back mm -hmm. and I can remain curious, I can almost always make friends with these guys after a while because they're doing an impossible job and they're doing it to the best of their ability and nothing they're doing is working. I don't tell them that they already know that, but I do offer them the option that I think I can help them be more effective and I can help them feel safer. And it is my job to address their concerns to their satisfaction. And all I want from them is that they do their best to make their concerns clear to me so that I can address them. So that's how you befriend them. That's how I befriend them. Are those parts in any way useful somehow for these systems? Well, they're doing their best. The problem with protectors is they never protect. Uh, and there's good reasons for that, but they they never protect. What they do, in fact, is invariably energize and attract that which they, they're protected against. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. That's what protective parts do. That's what they do on a macro level. That's what they do at a micro level. Like our def you know our defense department does not protect us. You know they see. Uh, They, they perceived Iraq, for instance, as a threat to us. So we sent over all these protectors. And when that didn't work, we sent over more. We had a surge. And, uh, and so now Iraq, of course, is uh, not a threat and totally consistent with our well-being, as is Afghanistan, which we also send protectors to. That's how it works at a macro level. At a micro level, You know, if I say I have a protector, so I look at Tish and I notice that she has a suspicious look on her face. And I say to her, look, Tish, I need I, I need you to respect me more. I, you know, I need more respect from you. Now, do you respect me more or less than you did 10 seconds ago? <laughs> 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 you know, that's what I'm not going In other words, and this part that, you know, escorted Tish really thought it was protecting me. It saw a threat mm -hmm. and it acted to neutralize that threat by controlling you and telling you that you had to be different. And and my guess is what Tish's part thought was, what an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we're off to a bad start. 
Like those suspicious and stubborn parts can be so triggering for for us as therapists. Yeah, well, they you know they don't think we're going to help, and they think we're bad, and they question our uh, intentions because we don't make moral judgments on what people do. We make moral judgments on why we think they did it. And that's why it's so important to, you know, when you're talking to firefighters, to help them understand we don't, uh, we, we know you're trying to help. We know you're not trying to cause harm. We know you can't help doing what you do. Because uh, if that the thing we cannot stand is moral judgment. And if you feel I'm judging you morally, you have to make me wrong and stop me. There's, you have yeah. no choice. We can't stand that. And so what the, the main thing I try to teach people and what the main thing I try to do is convey to every part I run into that I know it's positively intended and I know it's trying to help and I know it's not trying to cause harm because otherwise that part will experience me as judging it and then I'm an enemy. Is there is there some sort of macro function to for the system um, to attract what these protectors are trying to repel? Yeah, I don't know how to how to answer that. I mean, it feels well. We repeat relationship patterns, right? Like unhealthy relationship patterns, and yeah, we do. As a matter of fact, my friend Ann Halward and uh, has suggested that we have a series of conversations about essentially repetition uh what they call you know repetition disorder whatever when people keep sticking their face into the same fan over and over again and how that actually works and uh you know there there there's psychoanalytic understandings of that uh which is you know that people have parts that haven't learned how to relate uh to people and therefore keep basically making the same mistake and getting the same result and mm -hmm. protecting themselves from shame by blaming whoever it is they're getting the same result from, uh, which of course gets the same result. Uh, and that's, you know, that's an understanding, but Anne is one of these people who really has to understand things. So I, she's goading me to really think about this and we'll, we're having a series of conversations about it. But uh, the problem is that uh, there a lot of these behaviors essentially got some level, generated some level of relief. Like, uh, you know, parts that, uh, you know, try, try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. And mm -hmm. at some point, there, there, the discovery happens that every time they try and fail to the pain they're already experiencing, they're adding the, the, the pain of the shame of failure and the, the pain of disappointment. And if they stop trying, if they give up, then they experience relief, which is they don't get that shame of failure and pain of disappointment anymore. Yeah. And they experience a sense of relief. And then 
they associate despair with relief and 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 see despair essentially or giving up or helplessness as a resource rather than and they see hope as a threat so interesting and uh the problem is that these decisions tend to get made you know before people are old enough to go to school mm, okay. and they don't have any idea that they may have some more resources someday right. and they also have no idea that the price of this relief they're getting is infinite <laughs> is they're they're essentially sacrificing possibility uh Mm-hmm. this really and they don't know that so you know if you explain that to them and offer them the chance of letting go of that burden often they'll take it and then you know but that's you know that's one way of befriending say an extreme protector is helping them understand that they made a perfectly reasonable response to what was facing them and they didn't have the resources to understand the all the implications of that because they were three or four years old at the time. Yeah. And here they are, they get another chance. Mike, you say those parts can interfere with the relationship, with the therapeutic yeah. relationship, I understood. Are there other parts, and like those ones, suspicious? Yeah. Well, that's where I really focus. Uh, because it's my understanding that the quality of our relationships is the quality of our life. Mm-hmm. And people who have good relationships uh, tend to be happy, productive people. And people who don't have good relationships, no matter what else is going on in their lives, uh, tend to be miserable. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when I was fashionable in the 80s where I was getting clients who were getting their pictures on the covers of magazines. And they were, you know, the movers and the shakers and the captains of industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were all, they were some of the most miserable beings I've ever been in the presence of because <laughs> nobody liked them and they didn't like anybody. Well, Every, you know, their experiences were all people trying to either suck up to them and get something out of them or destroy them in some way or both. And, uh, and so they were lonely and miserable and hated everybody and uh, use their considerable power and evidence and uh, influence to cause pain. And and, uh, so what I tried to do is get to know the parts of them that felt they had to do that because what what I focus on is relationship, particularly the central relationship, because if you've been in a couple, you know that the quality of the space between you and your partner will determine the quality of your life more than any other single factor. Absolutely. Mm. And so I'm really interested in the parts that make that difficult. That that make that that this that space feel unsafe and threatening and uh difficult and they see your partner not as a resource but as uh you know, a problem you have to deal with. So I'm, I'm really interested in those parts and, and making friends with them and, uh, you know, helping them find a way to feel safer with the partner because yeah, what happens uh, is that uh, once protectors get very active in a couple, 
uh, then constantly the couple is in the struggle to uh, prove to the other one that they're the better person. That's what couples fight about, is who's the better person. And the more seriously they take that struggle, the more miserable they're going to be. So I try to help them get out of that fight. And, and the way I help them try to get out of that fight is by uh, helping them become less and less affected by the sense that they're being judged. The parts of them that are very reactive to their understanding of other people's opinions. What techniques or skills do you use to support people in being less reactive to the judgments of others? Yeah, we, we all have parts that are you know, that know we're bad. And when something happens out there that stimulates these parts and triggers them and they become noticeable uh, to firefighters, uh, firefighters feel extreme shame and then they do you know that we, we were talking about that last time so and then they do something that they associate with relief and the problem is that whatever they do usually causes trouble yeah. and uh and then of course that generates more shame which needs more relief which and then you get into what it calls the uh Basically, a negative spiral. Yeah, a negative spiral. Yes, and uh, and it just keeps going, go, going, and going. And uh, and so I, I, my firefighters do something, and what they usually do is they hit your tender parts, uh, because I, you know, the, the shame I feel I have to put out there and see in you. So you're the narcissistic, selfish, mean, right? and I need to convince you of that so you'll be better and change and so i hit your your tender parts which trigger your firefighters and then your firefighters come back and help me understand that i'm in fact a narcissistic selfish clueless one in the pair which hits my tender parts and off we go okay so uh what we try to do is go to those tender parts and witness them and provide uh, corrective experiences and help them un unburden, and then they're less tender. And so they're much less likely to get triggered with some, you know, implication. Or I, I see a look on Annabelle's face, which I associate with something and experience it as an attack. And then I go after him and we start that vicious circle. And, uh, an example I often use, you know, they talk about Velcro and uh, Teflon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What you're trying to do is help, you know, hurtful things bounce off rather than stick. You see, and an example I use is if I say, like, you know, I think you're being very selfish here. Now, even though you know I was using that as an example, my guess is a part of you reacted anyway. You just hear the word selfish and you, and it's going to trigger something. Probably not that much in this case. But but if I say, you know, I think you're a communist, uh, which used to be an extremely provocative and triggering word, but it's sort of become unfashionable as a, a insult. 
you know, it's much more likely you'll say, God, what an odd thing to say. I wonder why Mike said something like that. In other words, curiosity and compassion. Uh, that's more likely to happen. So you're you're trying to shove things in that direction. You're trying to help basically parts that feel unsafe and judged feel less judged and less unsafe. And the safer the space is between people, the more likely that the interactions they have are going to be uh, pleasurable and positive. Uh, because, uh, you know, one thing I say, which, you know, I to pr provoke people is although I don't agree with almost everything our former president said, mm. I do agree when he, when that riot happened in, of, I think it was Virginia city. Uh, he said there were a lot of good people on both sides. And I agree mm -hmm. with that. And I, uh, because I think the concept of a bad person or a bad part, as Dick has just published a book, no bad parts. saying there are no bad parts. If you think of someone as a bad person or you think of a part as a bad part, you lose any possibility of interacting productively with that person or that part. So I need to always work on the assumption that I'm dealing with a good person, that I'm dealing with a good person who uh, has been essentially colonized by frightened protectors mm -hmm. yep. and, uh, and, and therefore their capacity for empathy and connection is being blocked and disabled. And I try to be as curious as possible as to how I can uh, establish communication and connection with that person or that part. <laughs> but if I dismiss it as as negative or selfish or narcissistic or you know any of these labels that we use uh i don't i lose my power to be useful i lose my power to connect and what we need to do is connect and the more mm -hmm. connected we feel the happier we feel and the less connected we, you know that gets back to relationships so mm, yeah uh you know i'm constantly trying to make my help my parts feel safe and help your parts feel safe and the safer they feel the more cooperative they will be and the more the easier our project of healing will be for us to succeed in Mike, you also wanted to talk about disarming dangerous parts. What are those dangerous parts? Well, dangerous parts, you know, I mean, the most obvious ones are suicidal parts or, or, or self-harming parts or parts. You know, I was just had uh, a case presented to me where this young woman uh, has been sexually assaulted three times in the last two months. Uh, because she has parts that put her in harm's way and, and, uh, and essentially get her to trust untrustworthy people or people with untrustworthy parts or people who have parts that basically want to use her as a toy and don't see her as a person. And uh, so uh, the problem with that, and you know, and my the person who presented is a very sophisticated therapist, so she knew, 
what she needed from me was support in helping her uh, managers who were going to try to get this woman to stop doing this <laughs> uh, to relax uh, and, and, and stop trying to make these parts wrong because that just makes them more shameful, shamed and defiant and make friends with these parts and be curious about what induce, you know, what they need from these men that makes them blind to the, the concern. Uh, so those are dangerous parts. There are parts that, that essentially put this person in harm's way and, uh, and keep her from setting appropriate boundaries as well mm -hmm. to keep her safe. So, uh, you know, I try to get, I try to make friends with these parts, obviously, especially suicidal parts. And, uh, you know, there are two kinds of suicidal parts. There are the ones that are relievers. They say, you know, well, if you're in so much pain, there's, here's a ticket out. And then there's uh, punishing parts that say you're, a, you know, a stain on the earth and need to be removed. Uh, and they have to be approached differently, but uh, they're both trying to help. And with these, you know, the, the punisher parts, you know, what I will very often do with them is I'll listen to them for a little while and then I'll say, uh, does, if I, I, I was working with Tisha, does Tisha have any idea how much you care about her? And they go, that's a confusion again, right? What? <laughs> and then I say, well, you know, you basically are using her body. And if you kill her, you're going to be killing yourself. And you seem to be willing to die to essentially uh, make Tisha more uh, benign and, and, and make, uh, keep her from being destructive. So I can't imagine, you know, if you're willing to die for somebody's virtue, I can't imagine caring about them. And they get a little confused. And then I make a proposal of maybe another way we could go about that where this part could stay alive and yet Tisha's uh, bad things can be fixed. Mm. <laughs> and I know how to fix them. And I have this resource I call self-energy, which I can introduce you to. So that's, and, and the other ones, you know, you, you just will help them understand that I know a way we can get out of, get her out of pain without her having to die. And so instead of having to die, we can get her out of pain and she can have fun instead. And uh, they're relieved to hear that and they can be suspicious. But what you're trying to do is get any part you run into to become part of the therapeutic project. It sounds like you're really good with these dangerous parts, really good at contracting with them. Contracting um, is the whole thing. Yeah, that it's such a it's a it's making me appreciate what a skill that is and the amount of confidence that you really need in order to to make these these contracts. Does it feel as though when you're contracting with dangerous protectors, um, and I know dangerous is relative, but it's what we're talking about today. Does it feel as though they need to experience some of that? Um, healing of the exiles soon if you make if you make the contracts with them. Well, well the thing is, yeah, obviously 
the sooner the better. But usually when you're dealing with extreme protectors, it's going to take a while to get to the exiles. Uh, it's going to get, a, get to be a while before they are maybe are willing to admit there are such things as exiles and that they're, you know. But, you know, the reason protectors are so ineffective is that they are not looking out there. In other words, they're not dealing with you. They're dealing with the parts of me that are affected by you, that are reacting to you. So they don't see you at all. Uh, and so they don't get feedback from your reactions because what they're focused on are my tender parts that, that are getting upset. And uh, they're trying to calm them down. They're not trying to deal with you, which is one reason they don't deal with you very usefully. Uh, and what you're trying to do is help them understand that, in fact, these exiles can be soothed, that there is a way to develop a relationship with them, and that there's a resource that can help these protectors essentially feel much more, much less frightened and much less desperate. And uh, because they see this constant you know, ineffectiveness as meaning that they're worthless and unlovable. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, because they keep trying to convince you that you're the trouble and you won't be convinced. And they try harder and you get even more ornery. And uh, so, yeah, we're trying to get them out of that fight because I've never won a fight and I've never met anybody who's won a fight. I've never met anybody who's won an argument. Mm. Have you? Really not. <laughs> <laughs> just, just checking. You know, there's two more that haven't. Uh, right. So I, you know, I, I try to stay out of fights, and I try to help parts understand that, you know, no, you, you can't win them. Yeah. And it doesn't mean anything about you that you can't win them. Mike, coming back to boundaries and self-defense, what kind of boundaries do you have in mind? Okay. Well, I have, I have a rule of relationship which goes as follows. If you can't keep someone out of where they don't belong, you can't let them in at all. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that's necessary for uh, people to feel safe is that, they, that people don't go in where they don't belong and you get to decide where you don't belong. In other words, you know, if I said, Annabelle, can I stick my finger up your nose? <laughs> and you say, no, you know, I prefer you don't. And then I do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm unsafe. And, and, and the problem is that if I do that, the minute you see me from a distance of 100 yards, my finger is already up your nose. Because you know that you can't, protect that boundary so uh and you can't win a fight so the art of self-defense and i studied martial arts for a depressing number of years and and it did you know help me be more flexible and strong and uh keep myself doing at doing things i didn't like but it didn't have any didn't help me with self-defense at all uh Because, you know, very seldom did people come at me with a knife, but very often they came at me with judgment and uh, with assumptions and with uh, 
entitlement, and I had no idea what to do with that. You know, I knew how to take away their knife if they came at me with a knife, but they just wouldn't do that. They just, you know, assumed that I would do things that I didn't want to do and manipulated me into doing that or whatever. They got in where they didn't belong. And so one is you have to, you know, communicate with the parts that feel invaded. And then you have to be able to speak for them effectively uh, without making the person who's getting in where they don't belong bad. Because if you make them bad, uh, it's not going to go well. So uh, I really, like, for instance, I had a client who was very successful in the corporate world. Uh, and she was divorced from her husband, and she had a complex trauma history. And she was divorced from her husband, but she constantly took texts from her husband, uh, ex-husband, but not really ex-husband, to uh, that were insulting to her and whatnot, reacting to them. And uh, it took me a while to help her basically block his number and not take any texts. That's self-defense. <laughs> okay. And when she did that, and also I got her to stop negotiating with him and to have her lawyer do that. Now, that's very directive. And because I have a background in hypnosis, I'm not afraid of being directive. But I have to make a contract with people uh, in order for them to not feel uh, either uh, disrespected or pushed around by my directive part. So what I do is, first of all, get curious about the parts that are letting people in where they don't belong and ask them if they want help uh, keeping them out of there. And they do. <laughs> and then I can be directed. And I can say, you know, what? how would it feel to call your lawyer and say, uh, I'm not going to be talking to my husband at all. I'm going to refer every concern he has to you and, and see how that feels and see what parts uh, don't feel comfortable with that. And then we go to them and find out what their concerns are until they do feel comfortable with doing what needs to be done in this case to keep this guy out of where he doesn't belong. You know, or kids who think that you're supposed to be their valet and cook and how to help them understand that uh, those days are gone forever. <laughs> or, uh, you know, anybody who gets in where they don't belong. I'm thinking about this is this is bringing up this this idea like it's really clear when things are direct and explicit. But being a yeah. therapist. Um, Sometimes, you know, I have a lot of clients who are therapists or myself, there's almost like this energetic exchange that happens where you feel drained or you feel someone else's pain. Um, and or there's just like this kind of film that sticks on you. And so it's it's like a little less clear, but we feel oh, people's yeah. stuff. How do you yeah. work with that? Well, first of all, you get to know the parts that are feeling it. In other words, these are parts that are letting things in that don't where they don't belong. In other words, 
you know, empathy, you know, oh, you have such empathy, you'd be a great therapist. No, you won't. <laughs> Not until you learn how to keep that empathetic part back, because otherwise it's like somebody's down in the well and you jump down into the well and then you're both down there, you know? Uh, and so you, you got to get to know the parts that are feeling uncomfortable and, and, and find out what their concerns are and also why they can't, what prevents them from doing something to help them be more comfortable. And that's, and without giving that moral meaning. In other words, without saying, oh, you know, you're weak or ineffective or whatnot, but just be curious and find out what they're afraid would happen if they said, could you please get off my face? It's very uncomfortable mm -hmm. with you sitting yeah. there. Uh, and, you know, if you don't get off my face, I'm afraid I'm going to have to call for help because, you know, I don't want to get into a fight with you, but, you know, but, but just be insistent on, on your boundaries and deal with the parts that are uncomfortable doing that. Because of course, especially when people grow up in complex traumas, they just, that's not a language they speak. Uh, and they never learned it. So uh, they don't know how to do it. And especially people who grow up in what I call alcoholic families, alcoholic belief systems, where it's considered to be weak and rude to set boundaries. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so those, that's a, a burden that those parts have to be relieved of so that they can set boundaries. Because until you can, you can't have relationships. Because constantly people are in the way they don't belong and their fingers are up your nose and you, you know, you're dealing with that all the time. And that's no fun. So, yeah. And, you know, obviously because therapists are people who need 30 hours of therapy a week, uh, you know, I need to learn self-defense. You know, I grew up feeling very unsafe and I learned all this, you know, how to fight. And of course, Learning how to fight doesn't help you be safe because you yeah. can't win fights. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, eventually dealing, you know, when I was dealing with violent men all the time, I mean, I worked in an alcoholism agency and I'm, you know, six, four and I know karate. Who are they going to send to me? <laughs> all these violent men. That's what I got. And uh, they were here to teach me that you can't win fights. So, you know, I taught them so that I could learn. Therapists are people who learn by teaching. And so I had to become an expert on boundaries. Beautiful. Mike, according to the official IFS Level 1 manual, Establishing a contract is one of IFS natural first steps. It's the first step. Yep. You, Mike, you are presenting a workshop at the conference called Negotiating a Therapeutic Contract with Your Client and Their Protectors. Yeah. On the flyer, we can read, this workshop will address what Michael Halkin considers to be the most important element of therapy, negotiating a clear contract. What would you like to tell us about this workshop and the importance of contracting? Well, the, the thing that I keep running, because I do consultation is what I do now. 
and I'm, you know, forming more and more consultation groups, and I'm trying to help the IFS community see me as a resource uh, mm -hmm. for consultation. And what I find most of the trouble is there. Are, we have two problems. There are the the parts of us that get triggered by parts of our clients, and we have to deal with that. We know that. And the other is, what's the contract? What is this? What I constantly ask is, what is this person hoping they can get from talking to you? Uh, and very often, pretty experienced therapists don't have a clear idea of that. And if you don't have a clear idea of that, then basically it's very hard to evaluate whether any process is useful or not. Because if you don't know where you're going, then one direction is as good as another. And the clearer you are on where you're going, the, the more e the, the the more easy it is to know whether you want to say, to, would that part please see if it'll give you some space, or do you think that it'd be useful to have that part join the conversation? And you you can make that distinction much more easily if you know what you're trying to accomplish, and what parts uh, you're trying to befriend and uh, open up new possibilities for. And the contract can change 12 times in a session. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the more you recognize, okay, we're working on something new here, uh, the more effective you're going to be. So what I'm trying to do in two hours is help people uh, become interested in spending, a lot, putting a lot more interest and focus on that question is, what are we trying to accomplish here together? You know, and when people are going on and on about, you know, injustices that have happened, the question I constantly ask is, how can I be useful about that? Because I don't think, you know, you know, I could be easily replaced by a bartender, and for the price of a beer, you can get the same thing, or a Coca-Cola if you're not into alcohol. But uh, so... Uh, what I'm constantly interested in is how can I be useful? What are you hoping we can do together about this? And the, the clearer uh, uh, answer I can get to that, the more useful I'm going to be. And when I can't get a clear answer to that, I get very curious about the parts that make it difficult to give me a clear answer to that. Mike, in your flyer for this workshop, it, we can read that you will teach how to negotiate a workable therapeutic contract and how to enroll skeptical, hypervigilant, and hostile protectors to be resources yeah. in your project. Well, that's pretty much what we've been talking about for the last Absolutely. hour. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, in a way, I've sort of given that workshop here, but... Uh, because, you know, what I'm trying to do is communicate what I've I've been doing therapy for 45 years, more than 45 years. Wow. And so I'm trying to communicate some of the stuff that I've learned just because I've had a chance to make an awful lot of mistakes. And then, you know, as I often say, you know, I'm lazy and I just do the same old shit. And then <laughs> when it doesn't work, then I think, oh, my God, what do I do? And then I do something. And if that doesn't work, I do something else. And if it works... That's it becomes a technique. Mm. And then I try it again when something happens. And if that doesn't work, I have to think of something else. We do. 
my such interesting conversation and topics. So again, thank you so much for having us and for bringing such interesting tools to help us in everyday clinical work. And uh, it was a joy to be here with you and teach and we hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you, Anabal. Tisha, it's so nice to see you again.